Welcome to The Real Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Christine Koenig, hosting today with... Marsha Talbot, Associate Broker, Better Homes and Gardens Rand. So we have a full room today, super excited for our guests. We have our favorite, Mike the Mortgage Guy. Hello, how are you? Michael Van Mansart from Hudson United. Um, and we are lucky enough to have the lawyer guy with us today, Bob Krahulik. Good well, morning. Guys. Good morning. <laughs> I know we got a mortgage guy, we got a lawyer guy, we got the real estate guys. I mean, we could answer anyone's questions about anything today. That's the joy. Maybe. Oh, yeah, one on. phone call, you can list your house for sale, you could borrow money to buy your next house, and now you have an attorney. That's great. We don't have to leave the room. That's right. You should do that. Call one us. stop shopping, shopping right here. Yeah. One stop shopping. <laughs> So um, anyway, how was everyone's Super Bowl event last night? It's a sleeper. Sleeper, yeah. Oh, so, yeah I think dude. I slept through it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't win any money, obviously. I, I wouldn't be here now. <laughs> right. Marsha, I'm sure that you had a rockin' Super Bowl party at your house Absolutely. Last night. There was me, the two cats, and Jonathan in the studio. <laughs> nice. But I called my, I texted my daughter and I said, who is very, much more sociable or social than I am. And I said, Super Bowl party. And she said, what party? I put, Vander's in the bathtub, the five-year-old. Uh, Jacob is painting and no one ever invites me. <laughs> and I said, well, the next year. No, I'm not. I, I think everyone knows that I'm not a strict uh, football fan. Yes, I know. I was. I was. There was a little sarcasm in my. I got in it. my asking, <laughs> but I do know that there were two teams. There. Good job. Good job. Rams and Patriots. Yeah. I was able to answer somebody's question, <laughs> <laughs> and I also know that this was the lowest score in history. That, in yeah. history, really? Yeah. Well, I'm not Super surprised because it was. It was. I mean, it was like really slow for most, most of the game. Um, anyway, that being said. Let's circle back around to real estate. Um, That's sometimes like a football game. <laughs> so um, with Mike and Bob in the, in the studio today, I thought that we would take some time today to kind of work through a transaction and whose role and responsibilities go to whom, um, you know, specifically with buyers or sellers. What is, um, what is the lawyer doing for that buyer or seller? Um, you know, how are they interacting with the mortgage people, with processing, with, um, you know, with the title company, the municipalities, um, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. You know, we think, oh, the lawyer is going to write up the contract and then they're going to close. Well, there's so much that happens between those two things. Um, you know, and as a real estate agent, I'm often, t you know, have a conversation with my clients that say, listen, I'm now turning you over to your mortgage people. Like if I'm working with the buyer to your mortgage people and to your lawyer, um, and I may be in the loop. Um, I may not be in the loop. If things go smoothly, I may not get a lot of communication. So I need to make sure that we are having a dialogue. If you hear something, let me know. If I hear something, I'll let you know. Um, and then I work real hard to touch base with both the mortgage and the lawyer during the process just to keep an eye on what's going on. But sometimes when you don't hear anything, you just assume everything's moving along smoothly. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're on to the next, it's like a little hamster wheel, right? It's like you've passed <laughs> passed your work off and now you're on to the next, um, and, you know, keeping in touch as a real estate agent during the process, um, is also difficult, right? But it's also very anxious for a buyer. For sure. Because they're kind of in limbo at that point and. Hurry up to wait, right? That's yes, that's happens, exactly yeah. it. You had to do all this in a certain time frame. 
and all of a sudden no one is talking to him. Right. We are, but not, and we're not privy to some of that information. No. So we can don't worry, everything is fine. It's moving along. Yes, my, <laughs> my, my conversation generally goes like this. I'm sure this is what's going on, but if you really want to know, you should just touch base with your lawyer or you should touch base with your mortgage. There you e- go, email Bob. certainly has made things a lot easier. It's become so easy to copy everybody involved in the transaction. I know for years, especially attorneys, were a little reluctant to do that. They felt that maybe they are sharing communications that are confidential. Mm-hmm. So strong resistance for years and years and years. But I think most people realize there's a true benefit to keeping everybody in the loop so that nothing falls through the cracks. And, and I know when I can, I try to copy everybody on a communication just so that, like you said, Christine, everybody is in the loop. Yeah. So, um, you know, Marsha and I, we wrap up with a buyer. Let's talk about buyers first. We okay. wrap up with a buyer and we've got an accepted offer and we've sent around our purchase agreement. We have our mortgage, um, you know, we have our, our pre-approval letter. We've got sign off from the, the people selling and we say, great inspections. And sometimes that becomes a little bit of a problem where we might have to renegotiate. And this is a question that I actually have for Bob, because sometimes what I like to do is wait until the inspections are done and that we get the report. So if there are issues, we can deal with it prior to the signing of contracts. Well, I think in New York, we generally we, That's how we tend to way. do it here. I know um, Jersey's different. Right. In New Jersey, it's the reverse. I know that. And it all depends on which side of the transaction you're on. So if you are the seller, uh, you prefer having inspections done as soon as possible, preferably before contract signing, because for the most part, that should take away negotiations after the contract is signed. So nothing's more frustrating for a seller than to think you just sold your house for $200,000. Then the buyer proceeds with the home inspection, and suddenly they come back and they're looking for an outrageous credit because... Yeah, the roof might be 10 years old, or uh, maybe there's evidence of, of uh, some water damage or mold in a certain location of the house, and suddenly they expect the world. You're already under contract, and now you're renegotiating that contract for a substantial reduction in the price. Very frustrating from the perspective of the seller. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, that is a benefit of doing the, the, the inspections right. first. That's because, what we try to be, avoid. Because, right. Because a lot of times you walk through your house, like if you're working with a buyer, you, work through, you walk through a house for 15 minutes. You're not an expert on anything. The house seems to fit your basic needs, but you have no idea, right? Your, your understanding is that you're getting a house that has all the things it's supposed to have, working heat, right? Clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, Maybe. Right? No. Right? Roofs. No radon to right. inhale. Right. No radon to inhale. Roofs that. Let's not make it keep, sound that. Right. Roofs that keep the water out. And then you do this inspection and you find out that that you put an offer forward with an assumption that basic these basic things were in working order and now they're not. Um, and so that's, you know, on the other side, there it's an equally frustrating moment. Um, so that's, you know, so we handle that. So what's interesting is in New York, the agents handle that negotiation back and forth. And when we're done, we kind of hand a nice package over to the lawyers and they do the contracting. In New Jersey, vice versa, um, we do contract first, then they do inspections and the lawyers negotiate all of the inspection items. The real estate agent is out of all negotiations, um, I would say 85% of the time. I wonder 
how adversarial that becomes as opposed to trying to reach a compromise. My experience has actually been that it's it's fairly matter of fact back and forth between the lawyers provide um, like a professionalism. It's like they may be yelling in their head, but they write really nice letters to each other. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's <laughs> I was talking to one of the lawyers I work with and, you know, he's like, well, there's a lot of reading between the lines. Like, I know what that person is saying, but it's written very nicely and, and we courteously respond um, and it goes back and forth. And so a lot of times when the sellers and buyers are reading our very polite conversation back and forth, we can get through most of it that way. Of course, that takes a lot longer than having a conversation. It, it does. I mean, usually take, I mean, I would say it usually takes. I guess email works better. And for the um, most part, you see a lot of the same items on inspections, right? It's yeah. the GFCI plugs. It's yeah, very small right. stuff that I think has worked out between, you know, like you said, the real estate agents. It's the major items that I think the attorneys need to get involved with, right? Right. I mean, Underground tanks and thing, you know, things which are really big because if most of the time, and I think all of us or most of us are there during that inspection. Right. So we know what the key items are. You know, if it's a GFI, even I can recognize that. Yeah. You know, but um, in the in the water tests, and I usually, if it's a well and it's this time of year or there's heavy rains, I explain that that could be problematic and how it's corrected. Right. You know, so that we try to avoid panic on the other side. For That's sure. what really, you know. For sure. So we've reached the time for our first uh, sponsor yeah. break. So we we'll are. be right back. estate market is hot. If you have been thinking of selling your home, now is the time. At Better Homes and Gardens Rand Realty, we pride ourselves on delivering an exceptional client experience. Our professional agents will provide you with the market data you need to price your home properly and follow through with the best marketing to get your home sold. Call our office today at 845-986-4848. Chris Steritz has been an award-winning associate broker for more than 28 years. Chris's vast knowledge of Orange County ensures that your goals will be met whether you are a buyer or a seller, and she will help with your home inspection, mortgage, and appraisal process. She's also a specialist in corporate relocation, and the home inventory on her website is always current. For more information or to contact Chris, visit chrissteritz.randrealty.com. Hi, this is Christine Koenig with Better Homes and Garden Rand Realty, and I love real estate. I grew up helping my dad fix up his investment properties. That knowledge and experience has fueled my passion for real estate. Licensed in New York and New Jersey, I focus my business in Orange, Sussex, and Passaic counties. Check out my website at christinekoenig.randrealty.com or listen to The Real Real Estate Show. Mondays at 10 a.m. Tune into the nonprofit Notebook, your resource for and about people helping people. Learn about all the events and services available for you, friends, or family. Open your nonprofit Notebook Tuesdays at 11 a.m. WTBQ, radio worth listening to. Hi, this is Greenwood Lake Mayor Jesse Dwyer, host of the Greenwood Lake Radio Show. Tune in on Fridays at 11 a.m., call in, text in, and learn everything there is Greenwood Lake right here on WTBQ, radio worth listening to. WTBQ. I'm going to make this place your home. 
Welcome back to The Real Real Estate Show. I'm Marsha Talbot, co-hosting today with Christine Koenig of Better Homes as well. And we have two wonderful guests. There's Mike, the mortgage guy, Mike Van Mansart, and Bob, the or the lawyer guy, Bob Krahulik. <laughs> That's so, it. I, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I always think of you as Bob as opposed to the lawyer guy, but you you have two roles. A paradigm right? shift. <laughs> yeah. right. So, uh, by the way, Bob, do you want to let all of our listeners know when you're on the air here on a regular basis? Sure. So you can find me here on the air on WTBQ Radio every Tuesday and Thursday at 12 noon, plus the first Friday of every month at 8 a.m. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Quite often. That's I enjoy lot. it. It's a lot of yeah. fun. Been doing it for about five years now. Yeah, you know, he has such a good voice. I you know, know? And, radio voice, and a lot, and a lot to say, right, Bob? Uh, not always, <laughs> but I think we're about to talk about the attorney's role in the transaction. Yeah. So, we challenge you uh, today. <laughs> your, your buyer makes an offer, the seller accepts the offer. What happens next? Well, traditionally, what happens next is that purchase agreement, that initial binder, is passed on to the attorneys. Traditionally. In New York State, the seller's attorney prepares a contract of sale. So sometimes you as the buyer might be sitting back and wondering, hey, what's going on? I haven't heard from my attorney. The answer is typically because the buyer's attorney is waiting for the seller's attorney to prepare and send over a contract of sale. It should take 24 or 48 hours. Right. That's the pace you'll find in our office. Sometimes you're sitting around waiting for a week, maybe more, for the seller's attorney to finally get a contract of sale over. Uh, what I try to do is have a conversation with my buyer clients as early as I can. The first question out of their mouths usually is, what do you charge? <laughs> For sure, <laughs> and, that's true. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to tell them exactly what I charge. But what I like to do is go through the whole litany of closing costs a buyer can look forward to, usually including typical bank fees, title insurance premiums, the recording fees and taxes you'll have to pay to the county government in order to record the deed and the mortgage so that they have a good understanding of how much it's going to cost from beginning to end. Now, the bank will do this as well as part of its disclosure requirements, but I'm not always comfortable that the bank's numbers are what they should be. More importantly, when we're at the closing, I don't want my buyer clients to suddenly be caught off guard with right. how much money they're going yes. to need. And then they start looking around the table, pointing fingers, saying, how come nobody told me it was going to cost this much money? I, I come across this a lot because we always do these second looks for other banks. And I always over-disclose or I would rather overestimate and come in low once I get the title report back with the true fees than to undercut it so I look good and then have the buyer at the end of the day at the closing table sit there and go, what happened? You know, just like he's saying, it makes more sense to to tell you it's going to be more like we'll disclose 12 months of taxes to be collected, knowing good and well, we're not going to collect 12 months unless it's coming to time of year like school taxes are due. But regardless, I'd rather show 12 months. And then when the title report comes in and says, all right, Mike, you only need to collect this, this and this. That's great. It's less that the buyer is coming out of pocket and it makes everybody look better. And we're not scrambling last minute to find a couple hundred bucks that we didn't know. By the way, I think that's super interesting, Mike, because um, in all this time, I don't think that I realized that it was the title report that gave you those numbers. 
Yeah, every title company, I mean, there are set fees in the state, but you'll find different title companies are going to have the fees are allocated differently or they show differently on the title report. It'll be a $50 charge for this. Versus, oh, it's the additional yeah, charges, not, 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 the, the, not, the, not the title, title insurance. Right. The junk yeah. fees, we call yeah. them. Yeah. So those are, you know, those, the title insurance policies, those are a fixed percentage of That's the purchase knew, price yeah. and the loan amount. Yeah. But for the most part, there's other fees. So we'll just overestimate to be safe. I, you know, I know. It doesn't make us look great, but I'd rather come to the closing table and have enough money to close than to say, all right, guys, we have to walk away because we don't have enough money. We do that also. I mean, we, we're not exact at that, but I, we try to give them a round estimate just so that they know. So if they're coming in and they're first-time homebuyers. Oh, and especially they, the first-time yeah, homebuyers. They, they have, have very no little idea. cash. You know, they might have great income, but very little cash. And we're saying you need money for closing, you know, approximately, not a breakdown, but approximately a percentage. Yeah. And I have had people think I am totally crazy. <laughs> I see a lot of banks miss the work preservation tax. You know, I'll get a, right. a quote from another bank, like an online lender, and I'll be like, you know, the first thing I can see is that they're missing a huge chunk of the work preservation tax. And it's because they don't know this area. They're literally just spit, plugging in information in a computer and it spits out what they think and then they try yeah. to manipulate it as they feel necessary. But really, it's it's a common mistake. And, you know, I, I see it constantly from those online banks that just don't do business out here. That's Very why true. we're not thrilled with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then the attorneys get into contract negotiation. And it's funny, within the last five years, we've seen some new issues that are routinely negotiated that never existed. And the best example today is what happens in the event of death or disability of the buyer or the seller. Hmm. We never used to discuss this issue. And now it's almost become boilerplate in all of our contracts where you'll find a clause that says, in the event of the death of a party, his estate representative or the surviving spouse, if married, has the right to cancel the deal and get the down payment back. And the same is true on the seller side. It's a double-edged sword. If a seller should pass away, uh, the survivor now has the right to say, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell this house. And often it's because they can't afford to proceed with the next transaction or with this transaction on a single income if somebody has passed away. Is that because people are buying and selling at ages that in in the past they didn't? I I don't think so. I think uh, the issue started to crop up. Some attorneys said, hey, this is an important provision that we've never really discussed with our clients before. I'm going to start having this conversation. And now I almost consider it malpractice if you don't. No, I think I think that that's part of protecting your client because you, you need to look at all situations. That's, that's, that's what they're paying you for, right? To make sure that you've thought of the things they never and, will. And if nothing else, that they're aware of the issue. So that if something unexpected happens and somebody should pass away, they understood from the very beginning that, this could have happened. Right. And at right. least mentally, they're prepared for that possibility. Now, if you're a home buyer, and that's an important issue to you, many sellers will say, no, I'm not giving you that contingency because you could die the day before the closing. And meanwhile, I've taken the house off the market for three months. I should be fairly compensated for having done so. So if you're so concerned about the down payment and potentially losing your down payment in the event of death, then the answer is to go out and buy life insurance. If it's a $20,000 down payment and you're worried about losing the down payment because your health is not fabulous, then you should have life insurance to protect that down payment. But I, as a seller, shouldn't bear the financial loss in the event of your death. 
it's a tough issue. Right. And there's no find, right or wrong I- answer. It just, it's just do you an find that, that when, you know, when these issues arise, not with the death part, but let's say someone's mortgage fell through or they lost their job, for instance. I've had a client that got fired as we were refinancing her, you know? So, I mean, that's not a purchase mm-hmm. transaction, but do you find that, I mean, really the sellers are wanting to go after that down payment or do you think that the attorneys tend to work together and say, listen, you know, we had three other offers on the table. We'll just contact those and maybe get this thing back to life. Or is it really... I really haven't seen many attorneys chasing that down payment unless there was some kind of, you know, the buyer's just like, you know what, go jump off a bridge. I'm not going to buy this house type thing. Right. I I think most people are reasonable in the handling of that situation. And maybe they'll agree on some compromise that fairly compensates the seller, but is not, does not result in a a huge financial catastrophic loss to the buyer. Uh, I rarely see a a lot of uh, acrimony over that issue. Now, there's also the economics of fighting over a down payment. Right, so right. nobody's just writing you a check for $20,000 because that was the amount of the down payment. You're looking at uh, litigation, very expensive litigation, perhaps years of litigation. And all the while, as the seller, uh, if that property is tied up in litigation, you're not going to be able to turn around and sell it to the next buyer that comes along. Mm, that's interesting. So there's a lot of important reasons Sorry. why we, we don't litigate these issues from both the buyer and the seller's perspective. Interesting. I'm, I'm glad that I have not had that come across my, my plate <laughs> thus far, right? I don't see it that often uh, right. either. A, de- I mean, a, a decade in and so far so right. good. I've only had that with an offer and then somebody lost their job. So it didn't get to the, you know, the next right. step. Oh, I've had, I've had the dominoes fall, like, you know, it's, it, especially, you know, a few years ago when, when more and more people were losing their jobs, I had so many deals fall uh, because a domino two houses down, right? Someone couldn't get their financing, so they couldn't move forward. So they couldn't move forward. Mm-hmm. And now my seller doesn't have a buyer anymore. You know what I mean? And I understand, you know, what happened there. And my and luckily my sellers understood, right? Because they were aware of what was going on in the world. And we had talked about, you know, these sorts of situations could occur. And, um, you know, they didn't pursue anything. What's made these issues a little less painful today is I see down payments are lower and lower all the time. (laughs) Thank Mike for that. (laughs) And and whether that's because there is financing available that allows people to borrow 90, 95, 97% of the purchase price, or whether it's just less customary to expect a 20% or even a 10% down payment. So when I see a $5,000 down payment for a four or $500,000 house, I used to be shocked by that. Right. And I'm not as shocked anymore. Uh, and the good news for a home buyer is if you can manage to negotiate a small down payment, it eliminates a lot of the risk in the event you lose a job or you don't qualify or there's problems with your mortgage commitment. Because, well, nobody wants to lose $5,000, but it's not all the money in the world. It's not 40000 <laughs> Right. Exactly. I wonder also that we're looking at people who might have great income and not a lot of cash, and that accommodation is being made because their income or strength is there, but not in the, not in the bank anymore. Or they have it tied up in a 401k or something that they need to borrow again, so the money is not readily available if they wanted to put 20% down at contract. You know? So they right. have what's in their savings, what they're comfortable you know, putting down, and then we'll collect the rest at closing. Yeah, financially, they're yeah. in good position, yeah. just not with a lot of uh, easy cash. Right. Yeah. So for our listeners out there who are buying, just because you're putting 20% down doesn't mean you have to put 20% down at contract signing. 
that could be negotiated to 10%, 5%, or just a couple thousand dollars if the seller will agree to it. And their attorney. More importantly, <laughs> their attorney. Well, a lot, and a lot of times when we write our purchase agreement, we write the purchase agreement before attorneys are involved. Correct. So an attorney hasn't even really counseled their seller on what to accept or not. They've already agreed to it before the paperwork gets to the attorney. But it is subject to attorneys, buyer and seller's attorney approvals. It so. is, and I've, I've had I've had attorneys come back um, and ask for more money down. Um, well, well, how do you, you guys handle the VA when it's 100% financing? I, I, I it, always, I mean, the ahead. people, the, the common question to me from a veteran is, what do you mean? I don't have to put any money down. And I'm like, well, you have to put something in earnest, you know, otherwise it's not a contract. So then how do you have that conversation when really they're borrowing 100% of what the home purchase price is and they don't want to put 5,000 at contract or 1,000? So what is the attorney, what's the conversation that you guys have and the attorney would have at that point? The conversation that I have is that, yes, it is going to be 100% financing, but the seller is going to ask for that and their attorney most likely, and that'll go towards their closing cost at, yeah, at I mean, the end. So as long as you've had that conversation, I think you're okay if you don't have that conversation um, and you're just saying you need to put 5% down or 5,000 or whatever, um, they, need to, they need to know that there's their money. It's, the, it's still their money. Yeah, it's not And they will have the it for closing, <laughs> which we know is expensive. Right. So, And from the seller's experience, a perspective, I think it's important to warn the seller that the down payment is only a couple thousand dollars mm-hmm. because it's a VA loan. They're borrowing 100%. They may not have the savings to put any more down. And you have to caution them now, if this deal does not close for whatever reason, you're only going to get the $2,000 down payment. So let's talk about why they're only getting $2,000. The The common contract penalty in the event of a default is that the buyer forfeits the down payment. Right. You're not free to just sue each other for ten or twenty or fifty thousand dollars. The contract will say whatever the down payment is, that's what you forfeit in the event you default under the contract and you can't close. So that dollar amount of the down payment is very important. Yep. So we are gonna come back with our guests in just a few minutes. This is Grace Warren, a licensed real estate agent for Better Homes and Gardens Rand Realty for more than 17 years. And I'm ready to hear your wants and needs, and then I will help you fulfill your goals. As a full-time residential specialist and longtime resident of Orange County, I know the Orange County market very well, and whether you're a buyer or seller, my priority is your satisfaction. For more information, please visit my website, gracewarren.randrealty.com, and let's get together. Hudson United Mortgage is the number one mortgage company specializing in residential loans in New York and New Jersey, where Mike Van Mansard is offering first-time home buyers low down payment options and a mortgage that saves you money and time. Licensed in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, Mike Van Mansard will patiently walk you through the maze of applying for a mortgage and is available for all your questions. Call Mike Van Mansard now to set up an appointment or for more information, contact Mike at HudsonMortgage.com. Hi, this is Marcia Talbot, a licensed real estate broker of Better Homes and Gardens Rand Realty, specializing in residential land and vintage homes. Rest assured that I will make your experience smooth and pleasant and hold your hand through the entire process. 
As a resident of Orange County since 1976, I know every nook and cranny of this area. Please contact me at marcia.randrealty.com for the best experience in your buying or selling process. Hi, this is Professor Richard Hull, host of the Warwick Historical Society's weekly show, History Alive. Tune in every Monday at 11.05 to learn how history is your past, present, and future. WTBQ, radio worth listening to. Juan Amy and the Car Doctor right here on WTBQ Radio Worth Listening to. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m., 855-560-9900 is the Car Doctor hotline. Give me a call. Let's solve that problem together. WTBQ Well, besides some patchy fog this morning, we are going to be seeing lots of sunshine toward the afternoon and even milder temperatures nearing 55 to 60. For tonight, down to about the middle 30s with some patchy fog again and maybe a spotty chance for a shower into Tuesday morning. And then look for lots of sunshine once again by the afternoon on Tuesday with high temperatures in the upper 50s to near 60 once again. From the WTBQ Weather Center, I'm WeatherWorks meteorologist Michael Prianti. I'm gonna make this place your home. Welcome back to The Real Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Christine Koenig with Better Homes and Gardens, here today with... Marsha Talbot. And we also have um, our favorite, Michael Van Mansart from Hudson United. Um, And we have the lawyer guy with us, Bob Krahulik. Good morning. So, uh, with the the brain trust we have here, we've been kind of digging into some... um, Situations that buyers and sellers should be aware of um, that are a little outside what um, your real estate agent will do for you, but are still um, super important in terms of making sure you're properly protected um, and get yourself through the real estate transaction from beginning to end. So one of the things we were just talking about while uh, you guys were listening to our sponsors um, has to do with rate locks. Um, So um, Mike, why don't you talk a little bit about the about the rate lock and and how it is, and then Bob, you can maybe ask. We'll talk from about your problems that arise. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. That arise. <laughs> we're, we're already through the contract phase, right? At this point, you've drawn them up, and the loan has been submitted to underwriting. So basically, what's what happening? What does that mean? That's where we submit it for the approval. The, that's going to say, all right, we're willing to lend you X amount of money based on this term, you know, um, and we're willing, we're confident that we can do this based on you meeting these conditions. Okay, to clear. right. But I thought as a buyer that I had this pre-approval and what is this other entity that is now checking it all out? I mean, when we do a pre-approval, it's always, we run it through an automated underwriting system, which says, you know, yes, we're competent in this. I scrub their income, their assets, et cetera. Um, But there's always things that'll come up. If an appraisal comes in low, if something comes up on a title search. So those are conditions of the approval. We need to make sure that, you know, you're buying a $400, Four hundred thousand dollar house that it's actually worth four hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, so I mean that's called the conditions of a loan approval. So during that process, right, we've you know we have the commitment or the the approval, and we are working through. I will have the discussion with the client about locking in their interest rate. Interest rates change every day. It's like gas, gasoline, and oil, right? right? So gas is one one price this day. Maybe a week later, it's up or down. It's the same with mortgages. Um, you know, the Fed left rates unchanged last week, but the market still changes every day with the with the ten year bond. So when the stock market's screaming doing good, chances are interest rates tend to go up with it. They usually follow suit. Um, so with that, we have a conversation. It's like, okay, we initially discussed this interest rate, and that rate is still available. We can now lock your loan in for a period. You know, it depends. It's up. 
we usually typically will lock a loan for 30 days. There's 45 day locks, there's 60, there's 90. The longer you extend the lock, meaning if I locked it today and it was 90 days, that may that longer lock, because we're now hedging against the secondary market, can cost the client more money. So a lot of times we will stick with the standard 30 or 45 days because there shouldn't be a reason why that if we're this far along in the process, we could not close within that time frame. So you asked about what problems arise from the rate lock. What do you find? Because you, it seems like you represent a lot more sellers, correct? Uh, well, sellers and buyers, I okay. see it from both perspectives. The, uh, the, the first thing people have to pay attention to is the closing date in your contract. And people often make an assumption that the date in the contract is the day. Is, is the day we're going to sit <laughs> and down the and sign the time, 2 o'clock. Right. And so and, and, uh, I'm going to just interrupt in here for real quick, because in New York, you're going to talk about it being an honor about date. But in New Jersey, it is a firm date. That is the date you're closing. So just so our listeners on the New Jersey side have a caveat here that we're talking about New York right now. Go ahead. So that date is just a target date. New York law recognizes that real estate transactions are complicated transactions and that sometimes things take longer to accomplish than one would expect and automatically allows either party to a transaction to extend that closing date for some 30 days. It's much more complicated than that. It's not an automatic 30 days, but you have to keep in mind that that date is a target date. So if you're a buyer and you're thinking about locking in your interest rate, that lock-in agreement requires you to close by a specified date. If you don't, there's no guarantee you'll get that interest rate, or you may have to pay a fee to extend that rate lock agreement for another two weeks or another 30 days. Uh, everything could be going on track, and all of a sudden, your client will tell you they've locked in their rate, and that might sound good, until you call the seller's attorney and you say, we're ready to close. We have a rate lock that's going to expire on February 15th. Can we now schedule this closing for Valentine's Day, February 14th? And the seller comes back to you the next day and says, I just spoke with my client and the house or the apartment they intended to move into won't be ready until March 1st. And that's where the problems begin. Yeah. Because your buyer expected to close by the 14th. First, they're disappointed they're not going to get into the house by Valentine's Day, now they learn it's going to cost $500 because they have to extend that rate like rate lock uh, expiration date. Otherwise, if the rate goes up even just a quarter percent, for example, that could cost thousands of dollars over the life of a loan. So a very important issue. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes people are disappointed because they didn't understand that parties had no obligation to show up on a particular date to close a transaction in New York State. Yeah. And it's interesting, um, you know, we're talking about that communication piece, how important it is to communicate everything. Um, and, you know, no matter how many times we'll talk about things like it's an honor about date, make sure you talk to your lawyer, make sure you talk to your mortgage person. You want to make sure that when you lock that rate in, everyone it, that we are in a position that we're going to be able to close within that time frame. I think we do a pretty good job of communicating before I have the discussion, usually with the buyer about locking in the rate, I've already had the discussion usually with the real estate agent to kind of get a feeling of where the sellers are or how far along they kind of are to kind of get an idea. I you know. know. And, and that makes me laugh because the real estate agent has absolutely <laughs> no idea. It's the well, lawyer. We kind of set the tone. It's the lawyers getting, yeah. that know. You know what I mean? But, I mean, if there is, there's not always a fee to extend. It just really depends on the market. If you started at 4% today and a month later, the interest rates are 5% and you have a 4% locked in, chances are you're going to pay to extend. But if they 
remained exactly the same, nine times out of 10, it can be no cost. It right. just depends on what's happened since we locked the rate. But let me tell you the question that we always get. How do I tell the moving company what date? <laughs> right. No, for yeah. sure. I mean, that is all, the buyer and the seller all the time. It's an important question, especially as, as you get into like June where everybody is moving. Right. And they're you booked. Know. And like if, if, yeah. I don't, if, if they don't move me this day, they can't move me for another two weeks. I right. can't believe how many people set, call the movers and set a date before they even clear the loan to close or the sellers are even ready. It's just, they, from other they areas. constantly, yeah, they constantly <laughs> look at that closing date and they're like, yeah, I told them February 15th and we're ready. The movers are going to be there. I'm like, what are you talking about? At two o'clock. <laughs> yeah. It's always two o'clock. It's always two o'clock. I know every closing in the in this state is at two o'clock. Well, I tell every funder that it's 9 a.m. regardless of what time it closes because I want that money there at 9.01. I don't want to wait around. <laughs> right. That's fine. So There are some easy fixes to get around this issue. Uh, one is to close, even though the sellers may not have vacated the house. And we allow that to happen by going to a closing, signing all the papers, technically title transfers to the buyer, but the seller will retain occupancy of the property. And they'll sign what's called a post-occupancy agreement, which is a very simple lease agreement that says, listen, we're going to continue to live in the house for two more weeks. We're going to pay for that right. Might be $100 or $200 a day. And we're going to pay the utilities. We're going to pay the taxes during that period of time. And as soon as we can move out, we'll move out. And then the buyer can move in. Perhaps not the perfect scenario, but it will allow a buyer to preserve that lower interest rate and perhaps save some money by not having to extend the rate lock agreement. Do you, what's the downside of that agreement? Because I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of frowny faces going on when, when that situation is suggested. So two concerns. One, a concern that the seller is not going to move out when they promise. Right. So they tell you they need 14 days. And then suddenly they say, oh, our movers canceled. Uh, and now we're going to need another two weeks before we can move out. Now you're talking about a whole month. Meanwhile, your buyers, for all we know, might be living in a hotel room. Right. Uh, sometimes they need to register their kids for school and they need to move into a house. Uh, sometimes it takes compromise by both parties to make agreements like that happen. Another concern is that the seller may cause damage to the house when they're vacating. And suddenly the buyer walks in and the house is not in the condition they expected it to be. And you're fighting over who did what and when and why and whether that was the original condition of the house or whether it was caused by the seller, the seller's mover when they were moving out. Typically, we'll have a small security deposit, a couple thousand dollars to protect the buyer in the event the seller does cause damage. Uh, but it is just one more complicating factor, which is why a lot of people would rather not allow post-occupancy or early occupancy. But it is an important tool to keep in mind, and it can save you a lot of headaches. I've seen it used a few times. Not many people like to do it for those reasons, but I have seen it. You know, they do it. it it has happened, and it's not the end of the world when it does, as long as you have a cooperating seller that you're not worried that they're going to trash the place on the way out, I guess, right? In some ways, it's easier if the house is vac vacant yeah. and you have pre-occupancy right. than post-occupancy. There are some areas of the state, particularly down to Long Island, where they'll build a full week of post-occupancy into the initial draft of the contract of sale. Just in and, case. And it's almost routine. And the reason for that is to allow a, a seller to close... And then they move out and into their I, new house nice. after closing. When I have people coming up from Long Island or Staten Island, I feel like it happens in Staten Island a lot as well. 
um, they'll be like, well, you know, we're closing on this day, but what day are we moving in? And I'm like, I don't even understand this question. <laughs> what do you mean? And they're like, no, no, no. This is how we do it by us. When is it available Correct. to us? Right? I'm like, no, up, I'm like up here. We close and move in the same time. Hopefully. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, it is, you know, I always tell people, um, especially if I'm talking to friends and they're asking me about real estate questions about, you know, maybe they're in California or down in Florida and we're chit-chatting. And I'm like, listen, the first thing I'm going to tell you is all real estate is regional, even within the same state. What applies upstate is going to be completely different than what applies downstate. We, you know, different areas have customs that have kind of developed in their area that aren't consistent you know, across um, even one state, let alone across the country. So um, I think that we are about to hear from our sponsors one more time, but uh, stay tuned because we're going to come back with some really interesting stuff. Bye. This is Liz Ridgway, a licensed real estate salesperson specializing in the Orange County, New York and Bergen, Passaic and Sussex County, New Jersey areas. I'm an expert in helping my clients find their dream home and will further assist with the best attorney, mortgage and inspector referrals to make the process a stress-free journey. I'm located out of the Goshen, New York office and my Wyckoff, New Jersey office. Visit me at lizridgway.randrealty.com and get your boxes packed. O'Keefe & McCann is the only law firm for all your real estate transactions. Founding partner William O'Keefe will patiently guide you through every step, whether you're buying or selling property, commercial or residential, from the first meeting to the closing. O'Keefe & McCann earned their top rating due to their impeccable attention to detail, their dedication to a smooth closing, and the pride they take in their clients' complete satisfaction. They are with you throughout the entire process, ensuring a successful outcome. For the finest real estate attorney, visit omlawteam.com. Hi, this is Suzanne Dermany, an associate broker at Better Homes and Gardens Rand Realty in the Goshen office. Whether you are a first-time buyer or relocating or a seller, rest assured your journey will be a memorable learning experience. For more information, please visit my website at suzanne.dermany.randrealty.com. S-U-S-A-N-N-E dot D as in David, E-R-M-I-G-N-Y dot randrealty.com. Hi, this is Peter Feller of A&T Healthcare, your one call for the finest in home healthcare. Tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. to hear the latest news on everything health-related because your health does matter right here on WTBQ Radio, worth listening to. Hi, this is Wild Baby Love, host of Gospel Tracks, heard right here on WTBQ every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Musical guests, the best inspirational messages to get you through the week, and much, much more with Wild Baby Love. WTBQ. I'm going to make this place your Welcome back. This is Marcia Talbot and co-hosting Christine Koenig on WTBQ with some wonderful guests. We have Mike. Hello again. <laughs> the mortgage guy. And we have the lawyer guy. So, Bob, thank you for joining Thanks us for today. Me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're learning a lot. For sure. I think it's a, this has been an excellent discussion. And I think that we are going to um, move past the rate lock conversation. And we are going to go into one more um, area that um, is like another sticky situation or can be, um, and that has to do with municipals. Municipals so, and title, right? Title insurance. Yeah. So, so what is title insurance? Real quick in a nutshell, a title insurance policy is an insurance policy. You pay a premium one time only right at closing, and it ensures that when a buyer takes a deed from the seller, 
They'll be the outright owner of the property, free and clear of any unpaid mortgages, free and clear of any judgments against the seller, and it ensures that all real estate taxes have been paid in full. And to illustrate why you need title insurance is a lot of buyers will say to me, well, you searched the title, didn't you? Right. <laughs> and the answer is yes, but we're all humans and we make mistakes. The title searcher can make a mistake. The county court can make a mistake when they enter the data, say for a mortgage, because in the computer age, everything is based on how you spell somebody's name. And a simple typographical mistake can result in somebody missing an open lien against a piece of property. And because mistakes can happen, necessitates the need for an insurance policy to protect you. Because if there was a mistake, you as the homeowner cannot look to anybody else other than your title insurance company to compensate you for any financial loss you incur because a mistake was made. It doesn't help that on our disclosures, it says owner's policy, and then in parentheses, says optional. Yeah, thank, thank <laughs> That's well, the federal you government can, yeah, out you to can protect thank the federal us. government for that. But. <laughs> so yeah, they're always like, well, what's this $800 charge? I'm like, well, you want to make sure that if there's ever a loss of title, that you're going to be insured at the purchase price that you bought this house for. And I haven't seen one attorney that would ever sign off on them not taking that. Um, I actually had one attorney, she was an attorney buying, and she did not take the owner's policy, which I was surprised because she was a practicing attorney, but at her own risk, I guess, right? She exactly. understood her. She understood yeah, the risk she understood, she was taking. Yeah. Maybe she did her own research, too. <laughs> so, uh, right. so another important function of the title insurance company is they will contact, aside from checking to make sure the taxes are paid, they're going to contact the town building department and make an inquiry as to whether or not there are any code violations on record with the building inspector. Uh, some towns a little more aggressive than others, but in the more aggressive towns, they'll get in their car and they'll drive out the house and perform an inspection. Sometimes it's limited to the exterior of the house. Sometimes they'll make their way inside the house to determine whether or not there are permits for all the work that was done uh, as the house was either built or as improvements were made in later years. Uh, sometimes we'd be surprised at the type of violations that can be found. For example, and I didn't know this until recently, if you replace more than 50% of the windows in your house, <laughs> you need a building that. permit. <laughs> and if you're going to replace more than 50% of the windows in your house, they have to meet the new New York State building code when it comes to energy efficiency, and the windows have to have a certain R value. And I'm shocked by the fact that local builders will sell you windows that don't meet current environmental code regulations when it comes to energy efficiency. And you may install all these windows in the house only to find out that you're not code compliant. Uh, that can be a surprise. New roof. If you put a new you roof on your that. house, you yeah. need a building permit for that. So. Can I tell the other part sure. of, the, of the windows? <laughs> so if you replace all the windows at one time and everything is good, you do need a permit. Right. If you only replace 50% of the windows and they are the right R value, you don't need a permit if you wait two years to replace the other two uh, the other 50%. Would you explain that to me? Because to me, it just I feel doesn't like that's make the, any that's sense. The that's the building inspector who could explain that. That's to actually me. the building code, right? right? So right. the code will say, if you install more than 50%, you have to have a permit. They have to meet a certain R value. And how do you define what's 50%? If I do one a day for the next three <laughs> years? So the rule is if you do more than 50% within any two-year period, yes, you need a permit. And yes, they need to meet a certain R value. 
anyway, so things like that can trip up a transaction real fast because the contract will require the seller to perform the repairs, provided those repairs don't exceed the dollar threshold. I know. And it's here's so an example of that. So most contracts will say, sell is responsible up to $2,000. And if it's going to cost more than $2,000 to make a fix, the seller can just say, the heck with it. I'm just going to cancel the deal and give the buyer his or her money back. Well, why is that? And here's an example. Let's say you've got an older house with an older deck. And the building inspector goes out and says, listen, this deck is not code compliant. Worse than that, it's not even safe. And you're going to have to replace the whole deck. Well, if it's a sizable deck, that can cost fifteen dollars or $20,000. And it would be unfair to ask the seller to put $20,000 into a new home without adjusting the sales price right. and then allow the buyer to get the benefit of a brand new deck, which just cost the seller $20,000 and not have to pay for that deck. Because when the buyer decided to buy the house, they said, listen, the house is old, the deck is old. I'm only willing to pay this. And that was the original terms of the contract. So... Uh, that's the reason f for these contract terms, and it can result in a lot of, again, renegotiation of the transaction in the 11th hour, which nobody likes to get involved with, but it is necessary. So in that example, though, where the buyer, although there is a violation existing, the buyer knew that it's an old deck, knew that he chances are he was going to replace it or she was going to replace it. You are protecting your client saying you should not sign off or I'm not willing to sign off on this open violation, but the buyer wants to proceed there are instances where you allow it for that example, right? For a $20,000 right. deck that the buyer knew he's going to tear down the next day and put a brand new deck because maybe he knows how to do that. And are, I mean, are you guys comfortable? Do you see it happening more and more with those kind of examples? Sure. And, and what I'll do, it's really to protect me in case my buyer is very unhappy after the closing with what they inherited from the seller. So I'll pull the letter out that the building inspector issued that said there's a violation. And I'll just have my client sign the bottom of the letter so mm -hmm. that I can demonstrate that they were aware of the problem it, yeah. and they chose to proceed with full knowledge of what they were getting into. Right. But on sometimes don't they have a, a certain time frame to repair? The, if the, build, the, the building the department will set that time yes. frame. I right. think it's 60 days, but I may that, be wrong. It, it's sort of maybe it's dependent. I think it's negotiable because um, yeah. depending on the amount of work I've had. And the I, weather. Right. Yeah. If it's yeah, in dead of winter, of they'll give you more time. Um, so one of the other things that kind of falls into this that we briefly talked about um, was um, things like bedroom count, septic size, things that change um, from the time you buy it that to the time you sell it. And how do you accommodate um, those things and how do you market those things and what's the legal ramifications of some of those. So for instance, um, you may have a house that um, was built, um, you know, 60, 19, right, 60 years ago. It doesn't even have to be that long ago. Right. And the code for- 1990 maybe. Right. The code for the septic size would have allowed for a four bedroom. And so you have a four bedroom house. You bought it as a four bedroom house. Correct. Um, and now you go to sell it and it's no longer code compliant for a four bedroom house. Most people would say, ah, that must be grandfathered in. Isn't that usually the case? Usually, I would say yes. If the certificate of occupancy for that original structure said it was a four-bedroom house, what's more common and the bigger issue is when the original certificate of occupancy was for a two-bedroom house and somebody's converted either a den or a home office into a third bedroom without proper permits by building a closet or maybe an extra bathroom, those are the bigger problems. And it might not even be by the current seller. This work may have been done by the owner before them or the owner before them. But building departments were not as diligent 
and discovering these problems as they are today. So they're uncovering problems that existed two and three owners ago. And a lot of current homeowners will say, I didn't know about this when I bought the property. And the answer is nobody knew about it when you bought the property. So there's nobody to blame, but it is your mess to clean up, unfortunately. It's the same with underground tanks. Oil right. tanks, because in the ni- early 19- Ooh, 1990s, I just had a situation. the EPA told people to put them underground. Right. So they did what was legally, oh, I don't want to say legally, but what was suggested right. by the EPA. And now they have, you know, the issue of making sure to take it out, because as a buyer's agent, I am going to strongly recommend that, or even as a seller's agent, to do it prior right. to, you know, because that that's just a can of worms. At this so point. I have a question for the two uh, real estate agents here. If you have a seller who you know has done work without permits, what do you do? Do you send them down to the building department and tell them to take care of it? Or do you sit and wait? I, no, we tell them. I, I advise. Tell them, we advise. We advise them to take care of it. What I, what I generally tell them is it's probably going to come up and that you can either take care of it up front and know that everything is resolved or... Now you can wait till last minute and then delay closing and possibly lose your buyer. So I, you know, I really do try to counsel people if they know that they've done work, it's in their best interest to go and, and take care of it. You know, the best I, example of that is a finished basement. Yes. yes. A lot of people finish their basement <laughs> without ha- permits yes. and it's going to come back to haunt you eventually. There's another aspect of it. Even if you did get a permit, most people don't realize that they have to close that permit out. Yes. So you may have had the building inspector come in during whatever you were doing, new bathroom, whatever, but then you have to go back and make sure you, you finalize it. And that, that, so when we go to, to uh, list a house, we often go to the building department to find out there if are any, there are any open, open permits. permits yeah. So we can advise. By the way, the building department is looking at your listings. We know yeah. that. Online. And if they see you've listed a three-bedroom house or, or a finished basement. Door, yeah. 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 And Good they, morning. They look, <laughs> they look at the pictures, too, even uh, just to compare to their records. It's very interesting. Yeah, we do the know di- that. The and digital age is, uh, is you know. It's up. A plus and a minus, but we do try to advise people so that we don't get into these issues. So we are closing today. I know another closing. Another hour has <laughs> flown by, and I want to just thank our guests so much. Thank you so much uh, to Mike um, and to the lawyer guy. This was great. Make sure you listen to his show, okay, Bob Krahulik? Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. I think we remembered what days it might be on. Tuesdays and Thursdays, <laughs> twelve noon. All right. So thank you, you for listening Thanks. to the Real Real Estate Show.